Good morning, Alex and friends. I'm Grace. Today is Friday, January 26, 2024, and you're listening to Alex's News. Turning to today's weather update, Riverside is experiencing a comfortable high of 71.5 degrees and a cooler low of 48.6 as we continue through the winter season. In headline news, Alabama has proceeded with the execution of a death row inmate using an untested nitrogen gas method. This unprecedented move has ignited a maelstrom of debate and worry over its ethical implications and potential human rights issues. We'll delve into the reactions from various quarters and the legal nuances involved. In health news, the CDC has confirmed that a new JN.1 variant of COVID-19 has rapidly become the predominant strain. We'll look into what this means for public health and any new measures that health authorities are considering in response to this development. On a more positive note, scientific advancements have brought us to the precipice of potentially eradicating deadly mosquito-borne diseases. We're going to explore the breakthroughs in gene editing technology that are raising the hopes of communities around the globe affected by these diseases. Stay tuned for detailed analyses, expert insights, and more on these stories in today's episode of Alex's News. We have a significant update this morning as Alabama becomes the first state in the U.S. to carry out an execution using nitrogen gas. Kenneth Eugene Smith, a death row inmate convicted of a 1988 murder for hire, was pronounced dead last evening following the new and controversial procedure. Joining us now is our news reporter Ethan with the details of this story. Ethan, can you give us the basics of this unprecedented event? Absolutely, Grace. Last night, Kenneth Smith was executed via nitrogen gas, as you mentioned, marking a first in the United States. Despite a series of legal appeals, Smith was pronounced dead at 8.25 p.m. Central Time after the procedure, which began at 7. So this was after multiple appeals. Can you walk us through the legal arguments that Smith's lawyers made against this method and how the courts responded? Smith's defense team contended that using this untested method of nitrogen hypoxia violated his Eighth Amendment rights against cruel and unusual punishment. But the appeals were ultimately struck down. Notably, the concerns aren't unwarranted since the American Veterinary Medical Association has deemed nitrogen gas unsuitable for euthanizing mammals, and Alabama's own track record with executions has been fraught with errors in the past. With that in mind, what has been the advocacy against using nitrogen gas? Are there speculations about the potential implications of this method? Critics are worried about the lack of testing and evidence that nitrogen gas is indeed a humane method of execution. They argue that it's up to the state to prove that this method isn't cruel or unusual. There are also technical concerns regarding the mask seal and gas purity that could affect the process duration in the inmate's death. Given these apprehensions, organizations in the United Nations have raised their voices against the use of nitrogen gas for capital punishment. Interesting, but there must be some reasoning by the state for choosing this execution method. What are supporters and officials saying in its defense? Proponents are describing death by nitrogen gas as a peaceful and humane alternative, emphasizing the quick unconsciousness and death that the gas is claimed to cause. Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall defended its usage and Governor Kay Ivey believes that this execution brings justice for Elizabeth Senate. They highlight that nitrogen gas is readily available, framing it as a solution to the shortage of lethal injection drugs. Can you explain how the execution process actually works with nitrogen gas? Sure, Grace. 
During this process, Smith breathed in pure nitrogen through a mask which displaced oxygen, leading to hypoxia, a state of oxygen deprivation. Alabama's experts suggest that this should cause unconsciousness within seconds and death swiftly afterwards. Critics, however, argue that these claims aren't substantiated with rigorous evidence, which leaves the method's effectiveness and humaneness in question. Now considering this is a precedent-setting event, what might this mean for the future of capital punishment in the U.S.? It could very well open the door for other states to consider nitrogen hypoxia as an alternative to lethal injection, especially with the ongoing drug availability issues. However, given the divided opinions and potential legal challenges, we're likely to see more debates and court battles regarding its use. This could be a legal and ethical quandary we'll find ourselves revisiting in the near future. Certainly a complex and contentious issue. Thank you for that in-depth analysis, Ethan. That was our top story today and we will continue to monitor the developments in this case and the broader debate on the method of execution. We're moving on to our second story of the morning. A new variant of COVID-19, referred to as JN.1, is dominating headlines as it becomes the most prevalent iteration of the virus in the US and across the globe. For a more in-depth look at this development, we're joined by our reporter Chloe, who has been following the updates. Chloe, what can you tell us about this new JN.1 variant? Hi Grace. Yes, the JN.1 variant is a subvariant of Omicron and was initially identified by the World Health Organization in August 2023. What's concerning is that it now accounts for up to 86% of new COVID-19 cases, according to the CDC. This rise is attributed to its significant ability to outpace human immune response and the fact that colder temperatures have been conducive to its spread. That's quite alarming. Has the JN.1 variant led to an increase in hospitalizations or a change in the symptoms that people are experiencing? It has, Grace. The CDC is noting a notable uptick in hospitalizations, not just for COVID-19, but for influenza and RSV as well. It seems our healthcare system is again under strain from respiratory illnesses this season. Symptoms of JN.1 are comparable to those we've seen before fever, coughing, sore throat, and fatigue are common, including, unfortunately, the loss of taste or smell for some. With this increase in cases, what is being said about the effectiveness of current COVID-19 vaccines against JN.1? NPR quoted health officials emphasizing that vaccines remain a key defense mechanism. They do help decrease the severity of illness and reduce hospitalizations associated with JN.1. The New York Times has also helped to shed light on this, reporting that even as the virus evolves, the latest shots still provide some level of protection against variants such as JN.1. That's somewhat reassuring. With the prevalence of this new variant, are experts predicting any new measures or suggesting a return to restrictions to prevent further spread? There's no clear movement towards new restrictions yet, but experts are urging people to take precautions seriously mask-wearing, frequent handwashing, and avoiding crowded areas, especially as we see more winter illnesses. Interestingly, GRACE, wastewater data is becoming a critical tool for tracking the virus's presence, providing an early warning system of sorts for potential surges. What about treatments for those who do get sick? Is there anything new on that front? Paxlovid continues to be mentioned as a valuable antiviral drug. It's been shown to significantly reduce the risk of severe disease from COVID. But, again, there's a strong emphasis on vaccination and booster shots, with articles from the New York Times discussing upcoming formulations for new boosters. And with all these concerns about the JN.1 variant, how is this affecting everyday activities, like travel? 
Travel is seeing some shifts as well, there's a drop in airfares and a fight among airlines to fill planes again. On a regulatory level, the US has ended the vaccine mandate for foreign travelers, so there's a bit of a balancing act going on between staying safe and stimulating the travel industry. Lastly, any silver lining, or are health officials preparing for the worst? Grace, while we must remain cautious, there's currently no indication that JN.1 causes more severe disease than previous variants. And while symptoms are generally consistent, their severity often depends more on individual immunity. I would say it's a matter of continued vigilance rather than panic. Chloe, thank you so much for your comprehensive reporting on the JN.1 variant and how it's shaping our approach to COVID-19. We'll be sure to keep our listeners updated on any new developments. My pleasure, Grace. Stay safe out there. Good morning, viewers. Here are some other headlines we're following today. A worrying trend in our schools with the increasing prevalence of surveillance technology is sparking debates over privacy concerns and the severity of punishments for students, especially those caught vaping. Findings from an ACLU national survey indicate that roughly 18% of students aged 14 to 18 are apprehensive about their privacy due to school surveillance tools. There's a fear of potential discrimination, as some students worry that the technology could target them for seeking gender-affirming care or abortions. Furthermore, the effectiveness of surveillance in ensuring school safety is doubtful, with no evidence indicating that cameras prevent mass shootings. The intrusive nature of school-issued devices may also suppress student creativity and expression. With schools now setting up sensors and cameras to deter vaping, there's a call for better decision-making processes regarding student surveillance technology, backed by thorough research and evaluation. Turning to international legal news, the International Court of Justice is gearing up to deliver a preliminary ruling on a highly charged case accusing Israel of committing genocide in the Gaza Strip. While the core accusation of genocide will not be ruled upon at this juncture, the upcoming decision will focus on urgent measures and could have significant global legal ramifications. This preliminary ruling stems from a case initiated by South Africa and is anticipated this Friday, January 26, 2024. In the Middle East, tensions continue to escalate as the health ministry in Gaza condemns Israeli forces for causing civilian casualties among a crowd waiting for humanitarian aid. A recent surge in violent encounters has seen the Israeli military strike over 100 targets in the Gaza Strip, resulting in 125 deaths and 318 injuries in the last day alone. The conflict has led to a humanitarian crisis, with a vast majority of Gaza's population displaced and women and children suffering extensively. Efforts for peace have reached a standstill indicating a complex and deeply rooted conflict that extends over various sensitive issues in the region. On the domestic political front, the Republican National Committee has backtracked on a motion that would have dubbed former President Donald Trump as the presumptive 2024 nominee for the presidency. The resolution, proposed and then withdrawn by David Bossie, faced mixed reactions within the party, sparking debate over the best course of action for the upcoming election cycle. Despite initial support and Trump's own acknowledgement of the effort, the resolution was dropped to maintain party unity as advised by Trump himself, who stressed the importance of winning at the ballot box. In related regional news, connections between Israel and Egypt have become strained in light of the ongoing campaign against Hamas. 
Although diplomatic ties date back to the 1980 Egypt-Israel peace treaty, current military actions raise fears of a larger regional conflict, with Egypt explicitly warning of a potential breach in relations. The possible influx of Palestinian refugees to the Sinai is a crucial concern for Egypt. Despite these tensions, the two nations have maintained cooperation on a number of regional matters, which could prove pivotal in the face of escalating conflict. And that's a look at some of the key stories we're following today. Stay with us for more on these developments. Turning to a fascinating development on the front lines of health and technology, gene editing may soon revolutionize our fight against mosquito-borne diseases. NPR reports that diseases like dengue and malaria, which claim roughly 700,000 lives annually, could be combated effectively through this emerging science. For a deeper dive into this topic, we're joined by our specialist correspondent, Ethan. Ethan, can you start by breaking down the current situation for us? Absolutely, Grace. Scientists have been working diligently to develop gene editing tools that target disease-carrying mosquitoes. These tools aren't just aimed at controlling the mosquito populations, but potentially eliminating them, at least the ones responsible for spreading diseases like malaria and dengue. That sounds like a significant breakthrough. Could you elaborate on the key elements of this gene editing technology? How does it work exactly? Certainly, it's quite remarkable. Take Oxitec, the company leading the charge, they've engineered male mosquitoes that, when released and mated with wild females, produce offspring that don't make it to adulthood. In fact, trials have shown a reduction in mosquito populations by over 90% in some areas. It's a game-changer. That's impressive progress, but I'm curious about the implications. What are some potential consequences of introducing these engineered mosquitoes into the environment? That's a valid concern, Grace. Some ecologists fear that interfering with mosquito populations could disrupt local ecosystems. Mosquitoes aren't only pests, they're also prey for various animals, so removing them could have a ripple effect on food webs. Considering those delicate balances, have there been any evaluations on the safety of this approach? Yes. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, has assessed these genetically modified mosquitoes and found there's no risk to people, animals, or the environment. Oxitex trials also have safety measures in place. Furthermore, global trade and climate change are driving mosquitoes into new areas, so we must weigh those risks against the dangers of inaction. You mentioned resistance to pesticides as a challenge. How does the gene editing approach compare in terms of controlling mosquito populations? Pesticide resistance is indeed a growing problem. Gene editing bypasses this by targeting the mosquito's ability to reproduce effectively, rather than trying to kill them with chemicals. As such, it could be a more sustainable long-term solution. And what about potential risks, especially to non-target species or related ecosystems? Trials are designed to minimize such risks, but there's always the possibility of unforeseen consequences. And because mosquitoes can breed across different areas, the effects of interbreeding with closely related species or impacts on non-target predators are additional factors that scientists are closely monitoring. With all these considerations, where do we currently stand on implementing this technology? Well, after successful trials, Oxitec has begun work on eradicating the Aedes aegypti mosquito in North America, with Brazil already approving commercial use. But this is accompanied by ongoing environmental monitoring to ensure that the benefits continue to outweigh any negative impacts. As we look toward the future, 
what can we speculate about the effects of potentially eliminating these mosquito species? It's complex, Grace. On the one hand, we could reduce the incidence of devastating diseases significantly, which would be a monumental public health victory. On the other, we have to consider the long-term ecological consequences carefully. We might alter the diversity or abundance within ecosystems, which could prompt both positive and negative changes. It's a matter of finding the right balance between human health needs and ecological preservation. The journey to find that balance seems fraught with caution and hope. We'll certainly be keeping an eye on how this unfolds. Ethan, thank you for providing such insightful analysis on this topic. It's been my pleasure, Grace. Thank you. That's all we have for now. Today's episode was made by Alexander King with GPT-4, GPT-3.5 Turbo, the Perplexity API, and the Google Cloud Text-to-Speech API. I hope you have a great day. I'll see you tomorrow, Alex.